Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. It is March 5th, 2009, and my guest today is Nassim Nicholas Taleb, author of Fooled by Randomness and The Black Swan, and one of the few thoughtful people alive today who can say, I told you so. Nassim, welcome back to Econ Talk. Well, thank you very much. Two years later, a lot of things happened since. Yeah. Um, now, you have long been a critic of attempts to master uh, risk and the uncertainty of life with mathematical uh, tools. Tell me uh, what you said before this happened and how it has turned out. Where were you right and were you wrong anywhere? Uh, no, my, my point uh, uh, was that um, the uh, it's not so much a critique of mathematics as much as it is a critique of methods to estimate rare events. We don't know much about rare events by definition because they're rare. Okay, when someone tells you this event should have happened once every 10,000 years, and if the gentleman is not 10,000 years old, you know that he's getting that probability from outside his own personal experience. And, and, and the smaller the probability, the more you have to rely on some a priori specification or on a model, on some representation of the world. So my point is that the smaller the probability, the more fragile it's going to be in this estimation. And the smaller the probability in some areas, we're going to have the larger the impact. Look, for example, a 10-year flood has a higher probability than a 100-year flood. But the 100-year flood, with a smaller probability, will be massively more consequential. And you don't really care about the probability. You care about the probability time, the impact. You care about the expectation of these events. So small probability events have, can have in some domains, the last time I called fat-tailed domains, a big impact, and we don't know how to estimate them. We have absolutely no idea how to estimate very small probabilities, and they can be very consequential. So, so my, my, uh, my, my critique of the models was basically that they relied a lot on some theories to produce small probabilities. And the second one is that these models were very fragile in the tails, of course, but led to the built-up of humongous positions on tail events, calibrated to these uh, uh, theories called value-at-risk, to these models, to these representations. So the, the banking system, in my opinion, was extremely fragile, extremely fragile. Uh, not just the banking system, but anyone who had an exposure to rare events. Some people were robust and some people were fragile. The banking system was fragile. So I, I, I claimed in the Black Swan that some companies, after looking at their uh, risk reports, were sitting on uh, a lot of dynamite. And effectively, it ended up exploding a little later than I thought it would, but it exploded nevertheless. Now, do you think that they were – the thing that fascinates me about this, and uh, there was an article in the New York Times Sunday Magazine by Joe Nocera on value at risk – that you were quoted in quite a bit and clearly influenced his thinking. And the idea was that that these firms 
these investment banks and hedge funds and others had made their estimates using their models of of just how exposed they were to risk, and they turned out to be wrong on two counts. One, the probabilities were probably not right, but more importantly, as you point out, the consequences uh, were what were more important than the odds of the consequences happening. It was the size and magnitude of, of the effects. So here's my question. If you were the head of, of Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers, do you think that they were aware of how much they were gambling, or do you think they didn't care how much they were gambling? There's a combination. There's a combination. There's actually three three things. Number one, if they were uh, they were fooling themselves, there's some psychological dimension. So people tend to fool themselves into believing a certain story because it fits them. That's the first one. The second one is that they had an interest. Everybody on Wall Street had an interest in building. Uh, um, huge risks in a tail for the following reason. If you blow up every 10 years, you're going to make nine bonuses, and uh, the 10th year, uh, someone will uh, pay the cost, not you. Okay. In, in this case, uh, we have some, something quite vicious because we taxpayers are paying retrospectively for the bonuses of the first nine years. Okay. So there is a a certain incentive to not have insurance against rare events or even to have to build exposure against rare events, knowing that you have a high probability of making money any given year, but even if you have massively negative expected uh, return, which turned out to be, you know, look at the expected return from banks. Literally, banks are, as we're speaking, literally insolvent. They've lost more than their capital base, and... Uh, and uh, I mean, Citibank at one dollar share now is not, uh, you know, it tells you it's just at the option values. It has nothing. Uh, uh, so, so, so they lost everything. But the managers of these institutions <coughs> have kept their bonuses, so there is an incentive. Well, not all of them. Some of them were wiped out, right? Some of them have been dragged. Their reputations have been dragged in the mud. Yeah, because it went a little further than than a normal blow-up cycle. And what about the ones who didn't do it? What, the, the, what can we say about people, them? They had lower returns year after year than their risk, riskier counterparts, and now they should be doing extremely well. And instead, of course, they're not able to buy up some of the pe- firms that have made the mistakes because the government's propping them up. Yeah, that's, that's, that was my problem with the too big to fail, is that – if you let, uh, if we did not save the banks in 1982, the banks made the same mistake in 1982 and 1991, see? If we did not save the banks, then we wouldn't have let, or, or also in 1998 with LTCM, if we didn't save them, we would not have let something very fragile grow to be so large. See, Mother Nature likes to break things early, and capitalism is about failing early, not have some government prop you up so when you fail, you fail big, and you drag a lot more taxpayers with you down. So you think the moral hazard problem is very real? I think it started very early in 1982, when banks uh, had the same, very similar. Uh, they started, you know, with international lending, and uh, nobody was penalized. You need punishment in capitalism, not bailouts. Yep. You need incentives. In life, we need both incentives and punishment. If you have incentive without punishment, someone has a free option. Yeah. So, but the uh, the to go back to the the 
story of the risk methods used, I think uh, that maybe bankers were foolish enough to not believe in them, okay? Uh, to, to, uh, sorry, to believe in them. But you had literally, on a part of scientists, some, I believe, um, breaches of ethics. I mean, selling value at risk was to me a breach of scientific ethic because if you test it, you see it doesn't work. Talk a little bit about what value at risk is and how okay. it was used by these firms for the people who don't understand, who've never heard it before. Okay. The, 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 without getting into the details, value at risk uh, told you, um, gave you, uh, there's a, you know, different methods. There's value at risk, there's expected shortfall. But uh, the value at risk told you like with 99% probability, you won't lose more than uh, $2 million. The problem uh, it had was that should you lose more than a million dollars, the expected loss can be uh, fifty million. You see, and and so so who cares about just the probability of loss? You also care about how much you can lose if you lose. Right, I mean that's what's and so striking about this crisis to me yeah. as an outsider is you had a bad. Why didn't you just have a bad quarter? You didn't just have a bad quarter. You got wiped out. You got wiped out. So, so the, who cares about the probability of loss of uh, an excess of a uh, million dollars or two million dollars? You care about how much you're going to lose when you lose. So, the, the, the expectation of the loss beyond that, and that's rather intractable. Don't you think that the people who use those models knew that? That they knew I mean, that, I, that, I, that I, shortcoming. My, that shortcoming. I, know, I had a long experience even before the Black Swan, since 1997, 1996, 1997. Uh, I used the value at risk in 1993, started using it, and we had a 1994 crisis. You know, financial market had a mini crisis. I mean, definitely people don't remember it, but it was enough for me to enough to convince me that value at risk was hogwash, didn't work. So, uh, and and that all these claims (laughs) were just bogus claims, and and if these people were monitored by the FDA, they'd be arrested. So. The, the, and then um, I kept warning people, and then people kept bringing strange arguments. To me, there was another big argument uh, uh, against using these methods that rely on the past. And let's, uh, let's look at it as follows. If you're looking at large deviations in the past, all right, and you're in 1987, October, right before the 87 crash. The worst deviation would have had in history is close to 10%, a little more than 10%, negative 10% on any given day. So you would calibrate your value at risk to, by saying, okay, the worst I'm going to have is close to 10%. And sure enough, we had an event of 23% yeah. down right after. So. Yeah. And then now what people have been doing is calibrate to that negative 23% in a given day. Yep. So not realizing that if large deviations don't have predecessors, okay, the next large deviation is not going to have the predecessor. It's going to be different. Yeah. It's going to be different, and it's going to be worse because there's a bias, certain bias. It's too technical to discuss here. There's certain bias. Uh, I call it the silent evidence. Is that random variables tend to show the rosier path of the scenarios, conditional on existing. Okay, mm-hmm. Some, something linked to survivorship bias. Yeah. Now, the, the the fact is that Greenspan, when he went to apologize 
for letting the banks take so much risk. He said, well, we never saw these events before. But large deviations never have predecessors. Yeah. The first great war did not have a predecessor. Yeah. You see, the Cold War did not have a predecessor. So you have to take into account the fact that large deviations in history can happen without a predecessor, and it's very easy to be robust against these. It's extremely easy to be robust. What very do you, easy. What do you mean by that? To be robust, that was you can have you can have two portfolios. You can have one gentleman with a portfolio exposed to rare events, and and his brother exposed to the same random variables, but without so much toxic um, payoff should a rare event happen. How? insurance, okay, now conditional insurance company existing, or you can construct your portfolio in a different way. For example, I said that the linear combination of no risk, if you can find such a thing for, say, 80% of your portfolio, and high risk for 20% of your portfolio is a lot more robust to rare events than an equivalent portfolio on medium-risk instruments that would be 100% allocated in medium-risk instruments. Right. You'd have the same you know, perceived or variability in both portfolios, but one of them can disappear and the other one will not disappear. Now, the, 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 one of them is robust, the other is not robust. It's a very, the robustness is something extremely easy to build, extremely easy to look at. You just have to abandon these metrics. Just, but people did not want to abandon well, these psychologically, metrics. I don't understand. Psychologically, uh, the, the right uh, metaphor, perhaps, uh, I, it's not mine, but I, I find it very um, poignant, is the idea of standing on the shore as the Titanic heads off to sea. I mean, it's safe. Come on, get on the boat. That's where the party is. That's where the champagne is flowing. It's very difficult to say, I'm going to have lower returns than you year in, year out, but then there's going to be one year where I'm going to trounce you. And that's what... Yeah, that's exactly it. There's another thing that people criticized me when I said, I'd rather have 80% of my portfolio in cash. People thought that cash was not an investment. And as we can see from this crisis... The, what are the securities that performed the best? Yeah, cash. Yeah, cash is doing pretty well these days. Yeah, look at it. I mean, with cash, you can buy you can buy ten times uh, the number of uh, wine futures you, yeah. <laughs> you did uh, last uh, June. You see. Uh, let's come back to your point yeah. about not having a predecessor, because I think it's such a fascinating and deep truth. Uh, I think about it a lot because. Uh, People are saying we're going to have another depression, but of course, possibly. But of course, if we do, if the economy takes a very bad tumble, it will not be like the 1929 to 1946 uh, depression. It's going to be different. It's a once-in-a-lifetime, one-of-a-kind event, and your ability to learn from it is might just be limited to the idea that rare things happen sometimes that are not good. But we want to learn more than that. We want to learn all kinds of general principles. And it's, uh, one thing I learned from you is that sometimes that's not true. Yeah, but the, 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 uh, uh, this, is what I, I mean, this is some form of autism that we seem to have with respect to uh, history. Because we don't look at the past in relation to its own past. The way we look at the present in relation the way it is in relation to our own past. You see? No, me, to explain. To explain, when you're standing, when you look in 1987, okay, uh, you look at 87, what happened, that the worst event was negative, say, 11%, and the next one was negative 23%. You see? You don't transfer the same analysis to today. 
you don't say today's past, the worst event was 23%. <laughs> Therefore, the next worst event can be 50%. It be 50, yeah. So, so let's say if you take uh, to, uh, today's past, today's future, you see, uh, and then our past, uh, date in the past, its own past, its own future, you see, we don't transfer the, this analysis. So it's a form of autism. And it seemed it may increase with the use of mathematics because cab driver would understand the point. Uh, simple traders would get my point. I don't understand why someone with a PhD in economics or uh, <laughs> uh, financial engineering would somehow uh, like fail to understand these points. Well, part of it is hubris, right? Part of it is, oh, you know, it's. I am told. I don't know if this is true, but I'm told that uh, that some of the ratings agencies did build into their forecasts the possibility that default rates on housing would reach levels of the Great Depression, which would seem to be very, very safe then, because what could be worse than that? I mean, after all, haven't we learned something since then? How could we possibly have rates worse than the Great Depression? But of course, we can. Of course we can. The, 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 the fact is that that bothers me the most in this, that exposure to, to these tail events was preventable. In what sense? In what sense, if you take the divisions in banks, you know, let's not take the general uh, debt level in the economy, because that causes an exposure to tail events. Let's just take banks. Where they lost the most money mm-hmm. was, was the marginal. <laughs> they, I mean, they lost on subprime initially, and then on other, uh, in other areas that were not particularly profitable. I mean, were profitable, but, but not, uh, you know, they kept pushing the envelope in them. They're getting less and less profitable, and they increase the exposure. Yeah, a friend of mine in the hedge fund, a friend of mine in the hedge fund business said he could never figure out why anybody bought those senior tranches of those um, of the collateralized debt obligations because they weren't very. The return wasn't high enough. Yeah, they were making pennies. I wonder what the story is there. Pennies. Well, they got pushed into the pennies. Uh, I, I I remember. Uh, before LTCM blew up, it was the same situation. This is long-term capital management. Long-term capital, exactly. We had a blow-up in 1998, and anybody who still uh, used value at risk after 1998, well, there's a problem. He needs to have his head examined. Because (laughs) these events in 1998 uh, should have convinced you that that these bubbles, these crises uh, happen very fast, that you can have tail events, that you have contagions, that correlations go to one, that all the models cease to work when you need them to work, and and uh, and that uh, we should not bail out the banks because we should teach the banks to be a little more have a little more discipline. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and at, at, at that time, I remember the, those who blew up are those who were had positions that made pennies at the margin it was it was it was uh it's like there's a cycle people take the most risk when there's the least return and someone i remember i think jim grant was calling these things returnless risk you <laughs> <laughs> not risk return yeah uh, fascinating it, it was it, it was uh, 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 a very uh, interesting episode in history and surprisingly uh, we kept building a risk in the economy after that particularly starting in 2001, 2002, with Greenspan's Novocaine. And the most disappointing thing was Ben Bernanke calling the era after 2001 of low volatility, calling it the Great Moderation, and providing, of course, uh, 
analysis of why we had a great moderation, he didn't realize that, that, that what we call the tails were getting fatter. In other words, volatility was compressed, but the, the contribution to the risk coming from jumps was increasing. Yeah, I mean... I think he was referring to the longer period of 80, 1982, say, to 2007, but still. Still, it encompassed that period uh, that, that, that had low volatility. Of course, he's, of course, he's a central banker. He's a central banker. You central... realize the system was getting more complex, and the complexity started rising in 1995. And the risk of cascades increases with the Internet. Why do, you th- why do you think complexity was rising after 1995, or why do you say uh, that? The Internet, well, you know, fads, uh, look, at, uh, look at the book like Harry Potter, okay? If you take the, the uh, let's say that uh, uh, a, an environment that doesn't have complexity is an environment uh, that doesn't uh, produce large-scale events, okay? Uh, it, it's not a definition of complexity, but it's okay. So the more tail events, the more complexity, all right? So in 1990, before the Internet, you couldn't spread cultural uh, ideas very fast. After that, we started having, uh, like, the Harry Potter effect. Uh, we started having the whole planet reading the same books, listening to the same music. And uh, we started having planetary-wide um, fads. And as you point out, I think, it, I think it's in the Black Swan. Maybe it's fooled by randomness. That leads to very... Um large right-hand tails for a very small group of people, right? Exactly, the, yeah. I mean, it, it's right-hand tails for a small group of people, but also it, it's tails. I mean, it could be negative tails for someone with the exposure. But, uh, but it, you have concentration. I, look, I start looking at concentration, not of wealth, but say of income for people in some professions, sports or the arts. And, of course, you have uh, fewer and fewer people making uh, a larger and larger share of the pie. And, that and that's came because with that complexity, okay? Talk about that again, because I just I love the example you give in one of your books about the uh, the local opera singer who performs at weddings. Yeah, if you have say you have no globalization and and, and absolutely uh, no way to store your voice and and no internet and and no uh, CDs, uh, an opera singer in in uh, southern Italy, a very mediocre opera singer, will have his audience because people aren't going to go to Milan every time they want to listen to. Uh, opera music. They can't even listen to music without someone singing in front of them, you see. So uh, he will have a business. He will have a good business. Now we have a gramophone and, of course, later on, the Internet. So you get perfect re- yeah, you get perfect reproduction. Technology lets you hear anybody you want with perfect quality. Exactly. So you can, why should you listen to that poor guy? And, and he's, he's lucky he's going to get bookings for... for uh, um, for uh, birthday parties, and and the whole planet will have a handful of opera singers making more the bulk of the income, making and, a huge amount of money, huge amount of money, and uh, other uh, other people will uh, you know will, will struggle, and and we see that in literature, you see that in a lot of things, where uh, I, I'm using, I, I use that comparison with the income of a dentist. A dentist cannot store his work, he cannot leverage his work, he cannot scale, he cannot scale it up. Right, the world's greatest dentist is limited in how many people he can see in 24 hours. Exactly. So uh, you use massage professional, same thing. He has to be there to deliver his service. Whereas an opera singer can be dead. Yeah. <laughs> you see? So, or a writer. Every time I, I mean, I, I had a, I wrote my book, The Black Swan. Uh, when you bought it, you didn't call me up to 
you know, write, uh, you know, or the publisher didn't call me up, say, uh, write this book, uh, someone wants to buy a copy. You know, it's just they, they print what they got. <laughs> so information, the more informational economic life is, the more it can deliver large deviations. That's sort of the idea I had. Which is very good overall, by the way. I, wanna, I don't want to paint this as just disaster. There are many wonderful things about it. It People, is. You get you, great you opera singing. It. If you know that, it reduces predictability. <laughs> it, uh, it, uh, it, it does provide, I mean, you, can start, you have to expect to see spikes. Uh, you can see spikes because, uh, because you know, a dentist can have spikes in his uh, daily uh, uh, work, or, or if they exist, they're going to be uh, not very accentuated, but uh, sales of a record can have spikes. Yeah. Or uh, download a record can have spikes. So a complex system has other attributes, you see. But given the existence of spikes, you need to be protected from these spikes if you have an exposure. So you can get very rich if you're on the right side, but you can blow up very easily if you're on the wrong side of these spikes. Especially if you're leveraged. Especially now leveraged. So this is why I thought that, I mean, this is after the black swan, I started looking at leverage. And I realized that complexity cannot tolerate leverage anymore because there's no room for error. And not only that, but we had since 1980 a considerable increase in leverage in in the U.S. and in Europe, about three times uh, tripling of leverage. You know, uh, the ratio of leverage uh, to GDP. I mean, if the numbers are right, this is uh, <laughs> this, this is shocking. So you have a high exposure now to errors in, in in industries everywhere. People in their personal life, banks have high exposure to errors, coupled with a rise in complexity means you can deliver. The world can deliver. Large deviations. Very quickly. Very quickly. And, and we see that in commodity prices as well. You see the same, a, different, a similar argument. You can use a similar argument to show why you can have a rise in oil prices or a rise in wheat prices. So such a sharp rise in response to very small imbalance in demand, followed by such a rapid collapse. Um, it, we're now in uh, March, in early March, and uh, not long ago, we were talking about uh, inflation. Yeah. Not. And now people are talking about deflation. So <laughs> We're going to come back to inflation, I think. But, I mean, the, spec- the, the speculative issue in, uh, in commodity prices, I, think is, I don't think we fully understand it. I think, I wonder how much of it comes from... Um, the same mistakes of Mr. Greenspan and Easy Credit, and I'm not sure. I, but I think there's also something else, that, that people talk about globalization, not realizing that globalization has side effects. And, and let me... Uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to find a good argument for it that I should publish uh, you know, next uh, three or four months. A uh, mathematical argument, why globalization uh, produces fat tails. But the casual uh, explanation is as follows. You know, uh, in a competition, you remember I was talking about two banks, one making $2 a share, one making $1 a share, no? One robust, one non-robust, two, okay. two, two tail events. So uh, in, it was, with the globalization, the, everybody is going to be pushed to do, say, uh, the, the outsourcing in Bangalore or some similar place. So you're going to have a concentration of U.S. and German and French firms 
outsourcing to Bangalore. So it's going to have much cheaper costs. Yeah. Okay. But and the probability of having a problem in Bangalore is low. You see, so the odds are they're not going to have any disruption. So you have sort of a lower probability of failure or lower probability of problems with IT among these firms because you have only one, say, source of randomness. I'm idealizing, of course, it could be other places in Bangalore, but I'm, I'm idealizing them. Say, say all of them did their IT in Bangalore. Now, suppose there's a problem in Bangalore. A political problem, say. Any problem yeah. in Bangalore. Political problem, that there's a, a, a storm, flood, something, yeah. whatever, okay? Uh, that disrupts uh, communication with Bangalore. What happens to all these firms? See? So we, in a way, are not as diversified as we were before. Correct. So you have exposure. So this is why you have... You, 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 so, uh, I, I use the same example with the story of a French bank called uh, Société Générale that lost uh, a lot of money on a rogue trader. And I said that the problem is that if you had 10 banks with 10, 10 small banks with 10 rogue traders, each one of them having five, uh, uh, say, five billion hidden position, you wouldn't have a problem because if they catch you with five, million, five billion of hidden position, that's rather easy to liquidate. Now we have one bank hmm. with... You know, with, with, a, with a probability of having a rogue trader, so you have a tenth of a probability of having a rare event, say a rogue trader. But should it happen, the, his position would be ten times the size because a bank was one bank ten times the size of the other banks. Okay. Okay. Now, the the assume that you have nonlinearities in execution costs. Liquidating $50 billion is vastly more costly than 10 times liquidating $5 billion. I believe that. In other words, that lumping, the lumping, the fact that you have concentration among banks, um, you know, that's the drive, it's a drive for efficiency. That lumping makes you more vulnerable to rare events, more vulnerable to errors. Well, and the costs of when the errors occur are much larger, too. Your exactly, because one large error is a lot worse than 10 smaller errors. So where does... Spread, spread uh, over time. So where do we go from here? These are, uh, all, these are all important lessons, and we're not going to learn them because the government's not going to let people pay those prices. My, my, my problem with the government is that... It's, uh, it, I, I prefer nationalization of whatever you need to nationalize to bailout. Because in, in my idea is that the government doesn't understand that you don't give heroin to a heroin addict because he has withdrawal symptoms. You should stop the problem early, not late. So by propping up institutions that are very weak, you're, 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 you're making the problem worse for the next time around. For sure. So I, I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know what the government should be doing now, but, but in my idea is that whatever is fragile should break as early as you can. But that is and not the political um, incentives. It's not the political incentives. The second point is uh, about governments that people ask for more regulation. 
and 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 I say, okay, I don't like regulation for the following reason: value at risk was <laughs> uh, um, implemented because the regulators wanted it. So they made a mistake. I and mean, the regulators brought the banking system. Do we not need more regulations? People are going to go around it. I'd rather have something government-owned than regulated. Smaller piece of it, government-owned, and the rest unregulated. Whatever we may have to bail out one day, I'd rather own rather than be forced to bail out someday. Yeah, the problem is I'd be for that up to a point. I mean, in theory, I mean, I prefer nothing owned by the government. But if you're right, if we had a choice between bailout and ownership, ownership's probably better. The problem is is they can't keep their promise to not bail out the other part. Yeah, that, that's, that's the problem. It, it's the, the, um, it is, it is uh, because when you're dealing with government, you have all these diseases of dealing with governments, you're dealing with civil servants, and you're dealing with politicians, and, and both have very uh, different incentives from you and I. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, they like regulation because the regulators gain some powers. They like regulation, and uh, I'm, I'm very surprised that in all this argument in Washington, nobody spoke about the role of regulation in bringing this crisis. This crisis was caused by regulators. Uh, with the rating agencies, <laughs> regulators helped rating agencies spread their ratings. Ironically, it seems to me we put a lot of pressure on banks to hold their uh, their assets if in the form of AAA, which, of course, increases the return to producing AAA assets. And so it's not surprising to me that there was a big premium put on making sure that your asset was AAA. That is definitely part of it. I don't know if that's enough. Yeah, no, no, that, that's part of it. But there's other things, like uh, uh, I think pension funds could not, uh, could not hold uh, segments of the portfolios uh, in some uh, categories. What else? What other role do you think regulation played in creating the problem? What are you, What are your thoughts on uh, on Fannie Mae? Uh, well, Mae? Value, I mean, I'm I'm looking at it. Uh, uh, the one I'm most familiar with is value at risk. Mm-hmm. I, I was familiar with the rating uh, uh, problem to a lesser degree, but the value at risk is a uh, to me is like crime against uh, every form of uh, scientific knowledge we have, and, and regulators like value at risk because it's a number. It's a number. Yeah, it makes everybody's job easy. So, what do you think is what do you think is going to happen? Uh, do you think we're going to get continue to live in this fantasy of we can create a riskless world? I, I think that that eventually, what's happening that we're discovering that you can get. I mean, no government is big enough to save uh, to save large banks. We're discovering it now. You see. It's a hard way. So I think the system is going to break whatever is fragile, no matter how big it is, and no government can save it. We're seeing this problem now with AIG. Yeah, AIG. And, and globalization is cre- creating a, a more vicious problem, which is that nobody knows which government should get involved in what. Yeah. You think that the failure of uh, uh, Swiss Bank would, uh, would not, should not be a concern to the U.S. taxpayer? Yeah. And uh, the, these uh, UBS has more assets over here than, than it does over there. I think so, Gordon Brown was here yesterday in Washington, and I think he talked about stabilizing all the banks. <laughs> Just a great idea. Let's have every insolvent bank propped up. What a, what a brilliant 
strategy? Well, it looks like, I mean, the nation state, as you can see, the globalization has another side effect from the one I mentioned earlier, which is that the nation state ceases to exist. People have no control. Governments have no control over what they think they can control. They're all acting the same way. They still have control over my pocketbook, though, and that's the main... And that's, in a way, <laughs> they don't have control over what they think they would like to have control over. Uh, it's a really interesting issue because that is what they still maintain you know, through the physicality of where I live and earn my money. The tax system remains the bread and butter of the nation state. That, that is uh, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately true. So what, is, um, what does the future hold for Nassim Taleb, a prophet who has seemed to be right, but he remains somewhat unheeded as the future un- unrolls? So what do, what do you see your, your – um, where's your highest value, my friend? No, I, I think I'm – in a way, I, I'm, I mean I was involved financially in this crisis. So I said, okay, they're not going to listen to me, so I went back to trading as the finishing the black swan. Uh, I was involved financially, and now I'm going to be more of a philosopher. And uh, I think uh, that, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to be heated. It's okay. Uh, I mean, I would like to be heated, but I don't need it that much. It's okay. The ideas uh, are out there. They should spread. I think that uh, with a couple million books, <laughs> a couple million copies, a small minority will understand the points and, yeah. and spread them. And, and my contribution to society is going to take place in the form of people being conscious of the need to be robust to these large deviations. And now I'm moving on to my other projects. And so tell us a little bit about those. Um, It's always linked to probability, but to me, we don't make decisions based on true-false. True-false... Heads, tails. uh, Heads, tails. Epistemology is about deciding whether something is true or not true. And, and typically, you know, it's, it's a translation in statistics is you set a confidence interval and you say with 95%, this is true, that this drug works and so on. But we don't make decisions based on true-false. We make decisions based on payoffs and based on uh, some other judgment because uh, e- even, even when we sort of know the payoff, we don't quite know the probability, so it's very fuzzy. We don't really use probabilities in decision-making. And the ones who were aware of it were the ancients, as usual, because the ancients did not use probability. And when we uh, uh, discuss probabilities with a modern person, they think in terms of this is true, this is false, and this is a probability. But the ancients, for them, it was much fuzzier. It was more of a decision-making tool, and probability came from in Cicero, who coined the word uh, in his uh, beautiful uh, treatise, and for him, probability was something you approve of, regardless of the odds, what we today would call the odds. So, for example, would you drink water uh, you know, from a uh, uh, glass left on a table uh, by a stranger? No, you would not. But do you have evidence that that water is going to hurt you? No, you don't have evidence, but you're not going to do it because it's not something you approve of. So this is sort of the line of uh, uh, work I am following now. A decision-making under uncertainty uh, without using probabilities. 
something a little more complicated. And this is bringing me to a, to a whole new way of thinking about know, do what we do versus what we know. That what we know is not quite relevant. We do things in a certain way. I think in economics, of course, that brings me closer to Hayek in a yeah, way. It's very Hayekian. Very Hayekian. And, uh, and, 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 and it's taken me into the history of medicine everywhere. And it's taken me into an area, uh, extremely anti, sort of anti-academic, anti-knowledge. Because we humans have always been messed up by knowledge. And I have data. And then the history of medicine is a beautiful proof of that. Is that what we, whenever we use knowledge as a driver rather than tinkering, uh, we got in trouble. <laughs> Can you give Whenever some examples? We tinkered, sorry? Can you give some examples from the yeah, history of, course, of medicine? Of course, the history of medicine. Uh, there's a, uh, an argument used by Le Fanu with data, but, but you can see it in a lot of other places, that shows that our understanding of the biological processes led to a decrease in cures. In cures. Hmm. That when we were tinkering, just going randomly, looking for things, we did a lot better than with directed research because our understanding of the online process, of course, of course, it's incomplete. It gives us a very strong bias and and blinds us to things we don't quite understand and we don't know uh, are there. So uh, tinkering and and trial and error worked beautifully in the past, and we're able to produce a lot of cures. Now the cure rate has slowed down. Although our, our our knowledge has been growing exponentially, particularly since we know the, you know we have the DIA, yeah, and that's an example. Another one is, of course, you can see it in in, uh, in uh, medicine that typically most uh, medicines are used for to cure something completely different from hmm. what the original <laughs> intention was. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, so side effects dominate. So what you do, what you're doing in something like that, is tinkering, is try to collect positive side effects, collect yeah. positive black swans. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, it's, it's all part of the same package of how to live in a world we don't understand. The ancient knew how to do that much better than the modern. And we suffer from the hubris problem of uh, overestimating our, our knowledge. Exactly, and and there's some places in which can be very harmful, say small probabilities, where uh, this overestimation of knowledge is going to be very, you know, very high. Uh, but but uh, but there are a lot of other areas in which, uh, you know, it, it can be harmful as well. Well, one thing I've learned from you from your books, which I think is a profoundly uh, useful and important thing, is just how difficult it is to think rationally about probability and uncertainty and risk. And uh, it's a huge part of the human uh, experience that most people are intimidated by. And so they tend to use, they trust the science part and they let other people, you know, talk about the risk. So they, they ask their doctor, you know, what they should do as if the doctor knows the probabilities. The doctor has no idea what the probabilities are. Every person is different. Every treatment is different. Every disease is a little bit different. And we need to reclaim those things for ourselves. And we need to be able to think about them. Yeah, I mean, the, in my book, I have my heroes, the empiricists, who refused, who wanted to do the maximum they could without theories. That was, uh, I mean, you always have to have a theory in life. I mean, you have to have a theory of how a book looks like to hold a book, all right? But, but the idea of the empiricists is to minimize theories. 
minimize the harm coming from theories, minimize claim, a generalization. It's it's like everything is new, everything is different. That was the theory. And, and uh, empirical doctors were extremely successful until they were completely eliminated with the rise of Arabic medicine. And that was rationalistic medicine. And, and Western medicine was rationalistic after the Arabic uh, tradition uh, until we had uh, we had uh, the recent uh, improvement in uh, in medicine coming not from the doctors who were always rationalistic, but from the barbers and from the surgeons who were barbers. It's really and they were not theoreticians. So, so the history of medicine is is extremely rich. If you're looking for these arguments, that that thinking has not helped us a lot. But 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 again, it's not just there. I found evidence in a lot of uh, places. The one closest to me is option trading. Everybody thinks that quants make option formulas, therefore the market uses them, and it's turning out to be bogus. We have been using option trading formulas, not option trading formulas. As you well know, as Hayek would tell you, it's not some theoretician setting up the price of goods in the supermarket. Okay, it's supply and demand. And, 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 and supply and demand prices convey information. It's the reverse. So option prices, we knew how to trade options in a vastly more sophisticated way. And started in 1870. And my friend uh, Espen Hogg and I have been uh, looking at uh, how people priced options in the past. We did a lot better before they had the uh, black and Scholes formula. That's very interesting. So, so, so uh, we, here we have evidence that, that theories are getting us in trouble. But everyone on Wall Street thinks that we need quants to price options, not realizing that what quants are doing is observing price formation and trying to fit some formula on top of it. <laughs> Something epiphenomenal, yeah. and and whenever whenever we listen to them, guess what? We get in trouble. Well, it's also very much in the in the line of of pragmatism, a philosophical school that we've talked a little bit about on the show before. This idea that uh, Descartes was a little bit um, dangerous because he thought reason could triumph over everything, and the pragmatists were more interested in. A, Again, very Hayekian way of trusting what had emerged from trial and error as being wise, and um, it's uh, it's hard to accept that, but that may be the right way to go. It, it is hard to accept it, but uh, what I'm doing for my next piece of work is it's a very uh, general thing, uh, like the Black Swan historical, but also I'm compiling data. I'm trying now. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to provide data showing exactly that universities had negative contribution to knowledge <laughs> compared to practitioners. Uh, could be. I hope not, yeah. but could be. <laughs> I mean, I know that university in, in technological areas and a lot of areas, that it was what happened is that lecturing birds how to fly and then later on claiming credit. Say, Here, look at, <laughs> look at it, the birds flying. You know, it's listening, you listen to me and follow my equation. That's sort of like the, the, the idea I'm following in my next book. Well, I saw a... Uh an interview with uh, Peter Singer, the philosopher at Princeton, where he said it was probably okay for people to genetically choose smarter children because, after all, intelligence makes the world uh, better. And I thought to myself, not so sure. Uh, it depends on what kind, where they are, and what they're doing with it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah definitely. Plus, the definition of intelligence. I don't know how people define intelligence. If, if uh, uh, succeeding... Uh 
you know, what people call IQ. I'm, I'm more and more convinced that, that IQ, notion of IQ is, number one, local. It applies to one individual. And two, it applies, you know, exam-taking. <laughs> A very important skill uh, yeah. between the ages of maybe 16 and 23. Um, you want, we have a little bit of time. If you want to close and say something about religion and probability. Uh, most people think that religion is about beliefs. And, and again, using the same line of argument, Dick Neighbors' epistemy, I just realized that religion was about practice. <laughs> it, you cannot trust humans with knowledge. So You've got to tell them what to do, and, and religion helps a lot. And I learned that, uh, you see, I'm Greek Orthodox, but Arabic-speaking, from uh, you know, a Near Eastern uh, Levantine uh, tradition. So I wonder, at some point it hit me that the way Arabs say, I don't know, is not I don't know. You know how they say I don't know? No. God knows. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so it allows you to say I don't know. Right. And it's just that reason, okay, makes, it, makes religion very potent in taming our hubris. Mm-hmm. By saying that there's God knows. You don't say I don't know. You say God knows. You're transferring it yeah, away from, from, from your own uh, person to some other. So in other words, you, you're constantly, uh, you, you can allow yourself to be humble. Because you're not humble to another man, you're humble to God, to another entity. Your religion. So sorry, Go that's ahead. one function of religion. Okay, but there's there are other functions of religion. I again, I got this from the history of medicine. There are numerous, maybe about hundreds of accounts of people say giving their fortune to the temple of Apollo by telling Apollo, "Listen, you saved me when my doctors failed me." Hmm. All right. And I realized that this argument, but given that doctors up until very recently killed more people than they saved, that you really had negative contribution, particularly when they bled you. You know that. Sure. Uh, and, and again, even, even when they knew that bleeding did not necessarily help, they kept doing it because that was the thing to do. Or when they delivered your baby after coming from the morgue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, things like that. So uh, the doctors, and particularly going, uh, it peaked actually with hospitals in Paris with a death rate from going to the hospital. So, so doctors had negative contribution. I just realized that anything that took you away from a doctor to satisfy your illusion of control was good for you. Hmm. And there again, religion, if it's just neutral, okay, it was helpful. Ahead, Any yeah. religion, just the temple, going to the temple of Apollo. So I realized it took you away from a doctor. So that's another function of religion. <laughs> And uh, so I've been analyzing uh, or looking at, at this error we have in believing that religion is about uh, belief. And, and no, religion is about commitment, is about the system, is about living in something, because our beliefs, in the end, get us in trouble. We're not good for our, with ideas. We're not yet good with ideas. And as we can see now from this crisis, you know, we're not, it's gonna, we're not uh, anywhere close to getting uh, acceptable ideas. The great moderation turned out to be not so great. You know. Exactly. And so, and and what does probability have to do with it? For with religion, it's it's still it's still this idea of true false probability. I link it to the idea of what is true and what is false. You see, it's a degree uh, of belief in in, in a, you know and in, in that the statement is true. That's the way I handle probability in that. I say that you may think that the odds are, you may do something against the odds. 
Because the consequences are, are sufficiently Because the consequences large. are large and because, or, or some, even without analyzing it. So there are two things. Number one, probability is very opaque. We don't observe it. It's not an object. And two, even if it were something tangible, we wouldn't use it. It would be completely swamped by the consequences. I mean, that's sort of like the idea of Pascal's wager that keeps coming back. Describe. Uh, taking the concept beyond generalizing it to about everything in decision-making. So Pascal's wager is, since God might exist, I should, may as well, be a religious person. Exactly, because the payoff from, uh, from being religious uh, is much higher than the negative payoff from, you know, uh, from being religious, if God exists, is much higher than negative payoff if God doesn't exist. So you have nothing to do with this sort of like free option. That's the idea of Pascal's wager. Uh, but, I mean, this is a very simplified argument, and, 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 and it's very naive, because you have to also assume that God would, that the God would exist and not know about your, uh, your gaming the system, <laughs> <laughs> you see. Well, he might be just happy to see the, in some religions, actions are more important than beliefs. So you're okay there. You can, you can be a hypocrite in, uh, in some religions and still get lots of credit because you do the actions, even if you don't believe them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a notion of hypocrite. Uh, in, in the Greek Orthodox religion, if you ask a monk what is being Orthodox, tells you fasting and celebrating uh, uh, Easter and, and doing this and doing that. So that's, that's the definition of religion. Well, in, 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 Judea, the, in Judaism, Maimonides, who listed the commandments, uh, as did others, there, there, there's a, not every Jewish um, sage lists belief in God as one of the commandments because there is a debate about whether you can mandate belief. And for some, it's just enough to do the, do the commandments. Whether you believe them or not is not so important. That's right. I mean, I've, I've been trying to read the ancient text, and I realized that the name for religion in Arabic, deen, is a name for law in Hebrew. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> so, I mean, to be uh, religious in, in, it would, would mean, in Semitic languages, to be a law-abiding citizen. Yeah. <laughs> that's keep, it. Keep the rules. Yeah, keep the rules. That's yeah. it. So this is my idea of religion. But I think it's harder to keep the rules if you don't have the faith. So it's, it is a... Uh, yeah, faith connected. maybe something comes after. But, you know, in um, a lot of periods of history, some people said that we just need the faith because people cannot be motivated otherwise. Yeah, well, we're but doing then again, it, it comes back to I am less than less. I'm, I'm, I'm losing patience with people who are skeptic about religion, you see, and at the same time who are not skeptical about uh, economics or value at risk, <laughs> <laughs> you see. Well, if you worship man, if you don't believe in God and you worship man instead, you're more likely to think that uh, we can solve our own problems, right? It is, they're not, it's not, a, that's not a coincidence, I don't think. It is not, and 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 everything since our last conversation. This is bringing me back uh, more and more into. The, 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 I mean, it's making me at a red Hayek, uh, you know, after fifteen years, and I just realized this man had a lot of instinct. Yeah, yeah, he's a smart guy. He is. It's, uh, it's, it's probably his contributions will 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 uh, uh, some uh, someday be be be. Uh, Part of the, the philosophical uh, thinking. Well, I'm thrilled that people still heard of him. You know, we're getting we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll there. Well, my guest today has been Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Nassim, thanks again for being part of Econ Talk. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks a lot.
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.